Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with our good friend, Tal Schneider, chief political correspondent at the Times of Israel and Zman Israel, where we'll be previewing next week's big Israeli election. Cue the dramatic music. As all of you know, this is election number five for Israel in less than four years. Will the pro-Netanyahu camp finally win a majority? Will the anti-Netanyahu camp again fend him off? Will there be a sixth election in our future? Stay tuned. Just a reminder, too, before we get into it, a few housekeeping notes. First, don't forget, we'll be hosting a big Israeli post-election video briefing on November 7th at 2 p.m. Eastern. November 7th, 2 p.m. Eastern, where I'll be joined by Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, along with Shira Efron, IPF's Diana Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. So that's happening November 7th. Uh, by that point, we should have the actual final real results to play with, and you can register to attend at the link in these show notes. Second, we're conducting a survey to learn more about you, our dear podcast listeners. So please take a minute to fill out the survey. Uh, it's also in the show notes. Uh, I promise it'll be quick and painless. Finally, before we get to Tal, a few quick thoughts from me about next week's election. Um, all right, I get it. I get it. Everyone is tired of Israeli elections, uh, not least the Israeli public uh, and not least Israeli reporters and other foreign reporters who have to cover the Israeli elections. Uh, but I've said here before, and as you hear during my discussion with Tal, uh, this one, this election is genuinely existential for Israel's future as a liberal democracy. Um, it's true that Israel is stuck in a deep political crisis, a uh, kind of Groundhog Day, but with no fuzzy animals or Bill Murray. Uh, and instead, we have one campaign after another, after another, after another, uh, until maybe the end of time. Uh, we need to fight against this impulse, though. We need to fight against it uh, and against the idea of the last several years as some unchanging or unending election cycle. Um, each round over the past few years has had its own different context and its own slightly different but important results, um, even if the larger result has often been, yes, uh, deadlock. So how and why is this round different from all previous rounds? How will next Tuesday night be different than all previous nights? Uh, two reasons, to my mind. Uh, first, Bibi is no longer prime minister. The current serving prime minister is Yair Lapid, as you all know. In this sense, I truly believe that Lapid and the anti-Netanyahu camp don't necessarily have to win the election. They just have to not lose it. If there is further deadlock and a sixth election, then Lapid stays on as caretaker prime minister and able to fight another day. Uh, in past rounds, Bibi, of course, was prime minister. And so in order to actually replace him, the anti-Netanyahu bloc had to actually win the election. So this is a big change uh, and I believe may come into play next week. Uh, and the second reason why this round is so different than previous rounds, uh, the pro-Netanyahu bloc. The pro-Netanyahu bloc uh, is different. In previous rounds, you had perhaps a more moderate senior Likud membership and a more moderate right-wing parties uh, that were part of Bibi's bloc, uh, Thik Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, RIP. Um, basically, politicians not completely and totally beholden to the wishes of the dear leader. This time, the Likud has been purged. 
with Netanyahu loyalists elevated to the senior reaches of the party, and anyone with even an inkling of independent thought pushed way down the list or retired altogether. Um, and also look at the party just to the right of Likud, religious Zionism, led by Bezalel Smotrich and the Kahanist Itamar Ben-Gvir. They are clear and present dangers, I'd argue, to Israeli democracy. They are in lockstep with Netanyahu about quashing the independent Israeli judiciary and any kind of checks and balance over government decisions. Um, they are even more extreme, we should add, in terms of their policies vis-a-vis -vis Arab Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank and in terms of settlement construction. Um, and these will be Netanyahu's senior most coalition partners in his next government if he wins next week. So this is what we mean when we say that this election, more so than the four previous ones, is really existential. We can't get jaded or apathetic or tired as much as we want to, believe me. Next week, bottom line, is huge. Let's get to Tal Schneider. Hi, Tal. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Nuri. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, but obviously we're here to talk about the big issue and story and event that's happening in just over a week. Uh, point of information for everybody listening, uh, we do have a few more days until Israelis go to the polls. So if anything happens uh, between now and then, uh, anything crazy or unexpected, uh, that's the reason why we didn't address it in this podcast, in this preview podcast for the election. Uh, but then again, Tal, probably not much will change between now and election day, uh, because since the election was called in the summer, uh, opinion polls have been fairly static and they haven't really moved, right? Uh, between then and now, last four months, the pro Netanyahu block is just short of a 61 seat majority in the Knesset and the anti-Netanyahu block uh, with a complicated mountain to climb, I think it's fair to say, if it wants to cobble together its own coalition government after November 1st. So, Tal, I wanted to start there with the anti-Netanyahu block to begin with. Uh, caretaker Prime Minister Yair Lapid and the Ashtid Party uh, have only really grown in strength uh, since the election was called. Uh, Lapid himself has never really cracked 20 seats, but he's now polling in the mid-20s, uh, the clear second largest party behind Netanyahu's Likud. Uh, but on the flip side, obviously, Labour and Merits, the traditional left-wing parties, are really and dangerously close to the electoral threshold, four seats and 3.25% of the overall vote. So first question to you, Tal, is Lapid playing with fire here? where he's growing in strength, but the other parties in his block, the left-wing parties, are very close to maybe not making it in. Uh, last year, Lapid ran a very conservative lowercase c campaign, uh, kind of making sure all of his future allies made it over. So what changed for Lapid this time around? Um, okay, so first thing uh, is that obviously the change block is not even close to a 61 uh, ability to build the government, but the change block is currently holding all of the ministerial jobs, including the primership. So if the country is in a dead end and the election doesn't produce any results, Lapid remains as prime minister. Mm -hmm. 
So, for, you know, that's, that's a big change for him. Um, it's true that he's kind of playing with fire. There are many problems on his side, um, not just the threshold, but also, um, you know, no set of agreements between uh, small parties and so on. It's a technical procedure, but it still changes a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, this uh, election process is not a, is not a science. It's not, it's not math. When they say that Lapid is uh, putting merit and labor in danger, you know, I'm trying to ask myself, how does he do it? Do he, does he, he, he's growing, but it's not like he's bashing them or anything like true. that. It's true. Uh, so you're saying, you know, everyone's an adult in this process and maybe merits and labor have to look at themselves in the mirror first before they, uh, before they blame Lapid. Uh, but you raise an interesting point that the big difference, I think, in this election relative to the four previous ones is precisely that. The Lapid is prime minister. Netanyahu is not prime minister, first time in 12 years. And Lapid doesn't really have to win the election. He just has to make sure he doesn't lose. Um, he has to make sure that he has um, uh, what we call Gush Hossem. Uh, how would you call that in, A blocking- in English? Uh a blocking, a blocking, a blocking majority, majority in Knesset. Uh, so that Netanyahu is unable to form a government. Uh, we know for sure that Lapid doesn't have uh, a block of his own. He just needs to make sure that Netanyahu doesn't have one either. So that's the game here. It's I don't know if it's a smart mm-hmm. game or it's a losing game. I think it's a probably you know, lose, lose situation for the Israeli public because going for another election is just crazy enough. Um, so, I mean, we are already in a crazy process, right? Yeah, well, I mean, five elections in less than four years, uh, yes. And there had never been a repeat election in Israeli history before this crazy cycle started, what, three years ago? Yep. Three and a half years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, Lapid will remain caretaker prime minister, uh, if no one else is able to form a government after this election cycle. So uh, a major a major change in from previous rounds. Uh, how would you describe merits and labor uh, this time around, or maybe in general? Uh, they refused to combine forces. They refused to merge uh, ahead of this election cycle. Uh, Lapid was trying to get them to, to merge and, and to unify their electoralists. Is it a real sense that you've gotten from, say, more left-wing Israeli voters that they're just kind of disappointed in merits and labor, despite both parties being back in government over the past year plus? Um, yeah, I think they both have uh, probably five, around five seats. Not, I don't think they're going down to four. Uh, they both will probably remain on five. They figured that if they'll join forces, they'll get six or seven together. And if they're separating their uh, forces, there's, you know, there's still around 10 seats. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not an excuse to not join forces, because if you try to check on, on the issues, what is the difference between those parties, you won't find much. Um, so as per voter-based disappointment, yes, a bit. But, you know, if, if both of them comes up with five, it's not much different than previous elections. So... The difference is not huge. Uh, I think many people on the lefty liberal side of the Israeli map are doing what we call a strategic vote. 
which means right. that they are voting according, you know, to uh, gut feeling on how to save the block and not according to the merits, uh, merits, I would say. <laughs> no, uh, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, so what I mean, what I mean is that they don't vote on the content of the platform of each party. They only vote as per who would get Lapid the most effective situation. So if you believe in Lapid's messages, you still may vote for labor or merits in order to make sure that none of them is none, none of them falls uh, under the thresholds or actually people even consider considering voting for Ram or even Lieberman, you know, Lieberman in Israel, it's the complete opposite. It's like a right wing party, but still you don't want that party to be under the threshold. So this is a strategic vote. So very fluid in terms of the voting inside the blocks, uh, Israeli voters tend to, or some Israeli voters. Specifically on, on the left. Yeah. It's less, it's less fluid on the right wing, on the left wing. It's really fluid. So they, the pollsters are checking this by how much, how loyal are you to, to a specific brand? Uh, would you stick to the brand? And obviously, when, when, when I say brand, I mean labor, merits, uh, yeshatid. And they found out that, you know, many people still consider to switch. Uh, it's, it's not really switching sides. It's just making sure that Lapid has enough. I mean, if merits or labor or um, fall under the thresholds, Lapid doesn't have a government whatsoever. Yep. Yeah, and Ram is obviously the Islamist Arab Party led by Mansour Abbas, who uh, was part of this change coalition, uh, this outgoing government that deposed Netanyahu last year. Uh, Tal, staying in the anti-Netanyahu block, uh, we have the second largest party in this block, Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, which is this combination or amalgamation of forces with Justice Minister Gidon Saar, and then subsequently they joined forces with former IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot. National Unity, they haven't really gained any altitude in the polls. They've kind of been stagnant at around 11, 12, 13 seats. What do you think explains the fact that they haven't really uh, increased their strength, at least according to the opinion polls? Because in the beginning, they thought they would be competing with Lapid for the top or the leadership of the anti-Netanyahu camp, right? Right. Um, there were big expectations uh, out of them because of uh, the joining forces with Gadi Eisenkot, which was the only new person to, that joined this round. Uh, you know, big, I mean, big name, uh, former chief IDF. The the problem with them was that Gantz had once, you know, played completely against his promises. He promised never to sit with Netanyahu because Netanyahu is under indictment. And then when the pandemic broke, Netanyahu stood up. This is after the third election. Right. Netanyahu stood up in front of the TVs and said, Benny, obviously Benny Gantz, you must act like an adult. This is a world crisis. This is a, <laughs> a pandemic of once in a lifetime. We don't know what's, you know, we're going to have 10,000 people dead a day and so on and so forth. And he actually really put a huge pressure on Benny Gantz. And Benny Gantz yielded to the pressure. He was not able to keep this, I will not sit with Netanyahu thing. He went into the government with Netanyahu. This is uh, around May 2020, uh, you know, just a few months after the pandemic broke. He went into the government with Netanyahu only to be fooled and tricked 
immediately thereafter. Like within three to four weeks, Netanyahu started to, uh, you know... Uh, hammer him. I mean, there's no other word for it. They started attacking... Which is not just hammering him. He actually uh, made a fraud. He promised him that they will be prime minister in rotation, but Netanyahu made sure the rotation would never reach by toppling the government very in a very short time due to the budget uh, voting process. So Gantz was tricked uh, and fell into Netanyahu's charm, and he kind of he kind of swore never again. But I think the, the reason that his numbers fell recently is because some people in the public still think of Benny Gantz as someone who may not keep up his word. Um, so, I mean, obviously Netanyahu did not keep up his word as well, but nobody's punishing him for that. It's only in the left or the center left where they punish a politician for their, you know, for breaking the words. Yeah, uh, I think it's probably already priced in in terms of the public perception of Bibi Netanyahu and maybe some of his supporters uh, appreciate the fact that he's able to to get one over over his rivals and opponents from the left uh, time and time again. So you're basically saying that Gantz's potential voters just don't trust him since he broke his promise uh, in 2020, and that they're, they're skeptical or suspicious that he may, after November 1st, perhaps cut a deal with Bibi again, even though he swears he won't. Yeah, well, I think this is where, this is, this is the weakness. This is the reason he dropped recently, and you see it by the public statements that he's giving in the last couple of days, in which he's so forcefully keeps on saying, I will never sit with him, I won't even negotiate with him, and so on. But uh, I think the Israeli public is like, yeah, right. I mean, you know, some of them, at least some of them. So I'll put the question to you, Tal. Do you think there is a possibility that if there's another stalemate after November 1st and Netanyahu comes to Benny Gantz and says, look, Benny, you know, I know we've had our differences in the past, but uh, this time, you know, you, you should come join me in government because you need to save the country from a sixth election. You need to save the country from Itamar Ben-Gvir and the far right. Do you exactly. This is the main reason. It's not about the stalemate. It's about he will come to Benny Gantz and he's like, you have to save the day. Otherwise, Ben-Gvir, Itamar Ben-Gvir will become the Homeland Security Minister. That's the issue. And this is where the pressure is going to come from because centrists in Israel will come up to Benny Gantz, I mean, even his own supporters will come up to Benny Gantz and will tell him, you must save the day, mm. you know, break your promises and going as long as Smotrich and Bergvir are not in. Now, let me just tell you a couple of things about that, Larry. Uh, First, um, you know, Benny Gantz may turn up with 11 seats, whereas Smotrich and Bergvir will turn up with 14 seats. So it's not going to be enough. For Benny Gantz to save the day. Okay. Um, second, if uh, secondly, if Netanyahu comes up with sixty-one, he may not even turn to Benny Gantz. He doesn't. He won't need him. Yep, he won't need him. So this is just you know, um, you know, talking points. And I think thirdly, I think um, Benny Gantz um, was so um, harshly wounded from Netanyahu. On a personal level, I mean, he's been telling people around him that Netanyahu almost um, dismantled his family, his own family, with the harsh campaign and harsh 
rumors that you know Netanyahu just ran a- against uh, Benny Gantz. So, you know, I think this situation is uh, is so harsh between them. I I, I I'm not sure that he's uh, even you know even even myself. I I I sort of believe him that he doesn't want to go in no matter what. Um, I mean, really, he keeps saying it in in recent days in such a, a harsh manner. Um, it's I find it hard to believe yet again that he will do it. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you, Tal. And also from Bibi's point of view, uh, he doesn't I think want Benny Gantz and the National Union Party to be part of his coalition because Netanyahu has bigger plans for what he wants to do uh, if he wins the election and gets 61 seats. Oh, and by the way, there's another problem for, for Benny Gantz to enter. Um, his party will, I mean, he has 11 seats, but uh, Gideon Sarr and Gadi Eisenkot will not follow him in. So he will remain with what, like four or five people? It's not right. enough. That's also a very good point. Uh, last question about Benny Gantz. Uh, he's been going around this campaign cycle and he's been pitching himself to the voters as the only one able to form a government uh, if Bibi doesn't win a majority. So basically, Benny Gantz is saying that Lapid doesn't have a realistic chance of of actually forming a coalition government after Election Day. Benny Gantz has a better chance. Uh, he's hinting at the fact that he may be able to draw some of the pro-Netanyahu bloc parties or factions or Knesset members to him. Do you think this is a realistic scenario, I guess, politically and also even just mathematically, that Benny Gantz has has a, an actual path to forming a government? Um, listen, I, 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 I wouldn't rule out anything Fair because point. after what we've seen, what we've seen last year with the change government, I mean, after we had Naftali Bennett sitting together with Mansoor Abbas in the same coalition, you would think everything is possible. So I don't know. It seems very unlikely, but I, I, I wrote today, uh, that Benny Gantz is the only politician in Israel that is not vetoed off. Uh, by any of the of the other sides, so he is the only one who has no objections from any any party, from the ultra orthodox, from the Arabs, from the left, from the right. So, yeah, it may turn it may turn out to be a crucial um, crucial player in the process. But you know, let's okay. See. So you may you give it a bit more credence than maybe I do. I don't know how mathematically he can make the numbers up but uh you know then again Yair Lapid gave the prime ministership to Naftali Bennett and Bennett had seven or then six seats so like you said maybe anything is possible after election day although I guess the big difference is that Lapid is already prime minister so Lapid doesn't really need to give uh gifts or favors to anyone he can just go for another election and he'll still be prime minister I guess that's a big difference right um okay so let's turn to the pro-Netanyahu bloc. Uh, that's the Likud party, the far-right religious Zionism party, and the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism. Uh, unlike the anti-Netanyahu bloc, this bloc is all united. They're very cohesive. Uh, there's no danger that one of these parties will fall below the threshold. Uh, it's also clear, I think, uh, in terms of their policy agenda, after election day, they seem all very united and very, uh, let's say, motivated to get things done, to get certain things done after election day, if they win the election. Um, first off, 
Bibi and the Likud, uh, we've seen Bibi in recent weeks go around uh, the country in a glass-enclosed truck, the Bibi-mobile, uh, kind of like the Pope-mobile, and he's been going around to all of these Likud strongholds, uh, you know, Batya, Mashdod, Beersheva, in a real effort to get out the historically very traditional and very Likud voters. So do you think he's having success with this, kind of animating the, the Likud base, um, and who are these Likuda voters that he thinks just stayed home, you know, last time or the time before? Well, you know, there is some research, uh, research that uh, was shown that between the third and fourth election, many people were upset with Netanyahu for dumping guns because Netanyahu, as we said earlier, Netanyahu already had a government. He was first in the uh, in the rotation agreement. All he had to do is just keep this government, let Benny Gantz be prime minister and, you know, have it for, for three to four years. Now, immediately after they signed the coalition agreement, as I said, back in May, May 2020, Netanyahu cheated on him and tricked him so that the, the budget won't pass. And the research I just mentioned showed that many people in southern uh, cities or uh, what we call peripheries, peripheric cities, um, were upset with him. Um, being upset with the Likud leader did not send them to vote for the other side. It's just sent them to stay at home. Uh, we've, we're talking about huge number. We're talking about 300,000 people who did not go out to vote who were potentially Likud uh, backers. They just did not show up. And the Likud has had this um, the app, the all the efforts, uh, you know, the um, to identify these voters. Yeah, yeah, they had huge data, but still, it did not work. People just were like upset, I suppose. Well, some of them were upset. Some of them were. I mean, we all know in the fourth election, nobody was out of the country, right? Because there was this, <laughs> like this serious lockdown. They were at the beach. Even with the lockdown and with the pandemia and everything, just people did not show up for the polls. Uh, maybe some of them were afraid to, to catch the, the COVID or some of them were. But, but basically, at least a portion of them were upset with the Likud leader. So this is a lesson he's trying to learn to fix he says, I don't have to bring voters from the other side. All I need to do is to get my voters to come out and vote, to convince them that uh, the change government cannot you know, happen again. And I have to convince them that Mansour Abbas is a, what they call a terrorist supporter, and therefore they need to go out and vote in order to keep Arabs out of the government. This is a very, very racist campaign, actually, like many, many of the campaigns before. They just blame the Arabs for whatever because they're Arabs, and you hear that all the time here in Israel. Don't let the Arabs be in the government. Don't let the Arabs be part of the coalition. You know, it's very opposite from the sentiment on the on of, of the... Uh, change block, um, they actually want Arabs to be part of the government, at least uh, at least the Islamic movement party, Ram. So, I mean, this is not a question anymore among Lapid, Gantz, and, uh, and um, Lieberman. They definitely want uh, Ram in government. And, you know, the change block, at least uh, Lieberman and and Saar, they're both very right wing. It's not that it's not that they are not right wing leaders. Uh, they all come from the Likud or former Likud, and this um, you know um, 
also Benny Gantz party, the Machane Mamalachti National Unity, also have lots of right-wing politicians, religious politicians. You can't call them lefties in, in any way, but they want to have Ram included big time. Yeah. Uh, the problem, I guess, now, at least according to the polls, is that even with Ram, the anti-Netanyahu bloc falls short of 61. Exactly. So they're hoping... Uh, To make it over the hump as well with Ram it seems like a tall order at least for now uh by the way can we still call it the change block if they're the ones in government over the past year plus I mean shouldn't we just call it the the continuity block no I think it's a change block because it brought and it still remains a change block because it brought in something different a big change in Israel's perception of the Arab minority agreed so and also the It's, it's it brought it's brought in the change in the um, you know participation of the Arab minority but also something that we didn't see for many years and that's uh, work from left and right all the way I mean very left merits all the way to the right wing Yamina mm-hmm. so I mean this is definitely definitely a change if in the past you you would call governments that Netanyahu would bring in another party to From the center, he would call it unity government, but it wasn't really unity. It was Lily Kud being the leader of the country, and all the all the rest of the parties just around surround it. Uh, this time, without the Likud, it still remains a big change and and you know the Likud has been in power for like forty years uh, except maybe one year of Herod uh, Barak back in nineteen ninety nine all those years, the Likud was in power. And um, it is a huge, huge change because after so many years, you bring in merits from the liberal left, you bring in Ram, and also you do it in a unity way. So it's a huge change, yeah. Right. Fair point, fair point. Uh, and yes, it was a grand experiment of these eight parties from the actual wide gamut of Israeli politics coming together and, and governing the party uh, for a year until, uh, well, until it fell apart. Um, another question to you, Tal, about the pro-Netanyahu bloc. We have to talk about Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalel Smotrich, uh, their, their party, Religious Zionism, which is also this kind of combination of three disparate uh, far-right factions. Um, Netanyahu, even before election number four last year, pushed to have these two parties together. run together uh, Ben Beer and Smotrich's party um, and now he's he's brokered uh, a new agreement where they came together what was it last month again to run together and they seem to be growing in the polls uh, they may actually end up being the third largest party in the Knesset um, do you think BB has created this kind of golem uh, where yes he needs them to gain votes and to be part of any future coalition that he heads but it almost seems like they're actually taking votes away from Likud at this point no right they are taking uh, votes away from the Likud they're taking votes away from United Torah Judaism um, they are uh, becoming the third big party and this is a, a Netanyahu's creation back in the third election or maybe it was that the fourth election Netanyahu pushed them around to become um, partners and And in order to do that, he promised Ben-Gvir the chairmanship of the, um, um, the low uh, 
the Const- the Loan Constitution right. Committee in the Knesset. Uh, back then, I mean, it was written in an agreement. Back then, uh, it was a huge, uh, you know, debacle. Everybody were like, "Oh my God, Netanyahu promised Ben Gvir to be the chairman of the Loan Constitution Committee." Now, I mean, fast forward uh, year, year and a half, year and a half, and Ben Gvir is already, you know, he's he's been talking. Uh, talking himself to become the next Homeland Security Minister, while Smotrich is talking to become next Israel's Defense Minister. Not less than that. Now, obviously, the Likud can come up and say, no, 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 this is not going to happen. We're going to keep those uh, ministries with us. But, you know, I mean, really, really yeah. they will not enter government without being promised prominent files. It's not the portfolio. They want a big portfolio. They want Justice Minister. They want big, you know, big titles. And so, I mean, and by the way, they're, otherwise Netanyahu will not have a government without them. Exactly. So I try to explain this to people both here in Israel and people watching from the outside that by by default and by definition, Bibi has to give them something important and significant. He can't just give them, you know, de- deputy, you know, deputy science minister uh, because they're going to be. The, right. the most important coalition partner that he has, the largest coalition partner exactly. that he has if, exactly. if he wins and wants to form a government. So he has to give them something. Um, yes. Uh, and this is his own creation. I mean, he nurtured that. Is a, the entire Likud party went on radio in recent months telling all radios anchor how Ben Gvir became such a moderate person, how he is not this, you know... Um, threatening um, teenager anymore. I mean, they're, they just, you know, they just repackaged Ben Gvir in this kind of uh, much nicer package. And Ben Gvir, I have to tell you, I mean, if, for our listeners who do not know, he was convicted eight times in incitement and other uh, related convictions, uh, related felonies. And he is right now uh, running a, some sort of a beautiful campaign. I am so modest. I am so um, moderate. I'm not the same person I used to be as a teenager and so on. But we know that just until recently, he kept an image or a photo framed in his living room of Dr. Baruch Goldstein, the person the, the doctor that uh, conducted the massacre in Hebron back in 1994. And I mean, that person was killed instantly. He killed uh, 39 worshippers in the in Hebron right. during worship times. He was killed. He was killed at the time. But Ben Gvir, till until like two years ago, a year ago, kept a uh, is a portrait in the living room to be, to, to educate his kids in light of this person. And when he, and when, when he was asked about that, he said, okay, we took it off because of the campaign. Then he asked, do you have any other photos? I mean, his wife actually was asked, do you have any other portrait in the living room? And she said, yes, we have a portrait of uh, Meir Ka'ana from Kach. Now I have to explain that to you. Kach and Meir Ka'ana, Ka'ach Ka'ana Chai, that's the, you know, bundle of names, they are listed in the um, foreign terror organization in, in, under the State Department. And, and Ben Gvir's former uh, party mates, specifically Michael Ben-Ari, 
are um, banned from entering the United States because of, of, of uh, participation in a terror organization, the name that I just mentioned, Kach, Kach Ka'anachai. So, I mean, he is hiding behind slogans and he is hiding behind campaign advisors and he is just not letting the Israeli public see the real him. Um, and still, I mean, still not being the real him, he's still threatening to expel uh, Arabs or other people, other citizens who are not loyal enough to the country, to his opinion. Yeah, uh, it's a very dangerous state of affairs when uh, a person like this and a political platform like this and a movement like this gains so much prominence and has been made uh, kosher by the opposition leader, the former prime minister, who you know pushed to have him... Uh, make it into the Knesset, uh, which he did, which he did. And now he's uh, essentially pushing him to be around the cabinet table in his next government. This is Bibi Netanyahu. He's uh, definitely not going to be in the cabinet. That's not the question. Yeah. And so I guess it begs the question, Tal, and I get asked this question a lot, especially in recent weeks. How do we explain the fact that someone like Ben Gvir and, you know, Smotrich, maybe to a lesser degree somewhat, um, how are they becoming so popular? Why are they rising in the polls? Why are they getting so much support from the Israeli voting public? Yeah, well, they're rising in the polls because Netanyahu endorsed them. And Netanyahu promised that Ben Gvir is a moderate person now. Netanyahu is actually campaigning on their behalf. He is putting a nice face to them. You know, Netanyahu can be very eloquent and elegant when he wants to. And he is very popular and persuasive. He has a huge charisma. And when Netanyahu, who who heads the biggest party in Israel, says Ben Gvir is now legitimate person. That gives him an entry to everywhere. He just, you know, he enters the kibbutz uh, up in the north to conduct, uh, uh, you know, a gathering. He now has, he has business people supporting him, donating him money. We're talking about business people from Ra'anana. This is like centrist Israel, uh, the place where lots of former Americans and former and and um, people from the religious Zionism live. So this is like this. He's like a centerpiece right now. Yeah, um, and compare it to previous Likud leaders in the 1980s, especially who left the Knesset plenum when Meir Kahana was getting up to speak. They boycotted, physically boycotted right. Meir Kahana. And Meir Kahana is the leader of the party that now Ben you know, this is like uh, the evolution a of, sub-party, yeah. right? It's like the continuing, it's like a different name, but it's the same, basically it's the same founders and so on. Yeah. And I also think we shouldn't forget that over the past year, what's gone on here since Netanyahu was deposed and Bennett and Lapid uh, and, and their government took power is that effectively Netanyahu adopted the campaign and the slogans and the messaging of Ben Gvir and Smotrich. That, you know, the day after the Bennett Lapid government took power, you already had, you know, well, this is an illegitimate government supported by terrorists and Muslim brothers, uh, by the Arabs. And I was at demonstrations in Tel Aviv, endorsed by the Likud, uh, with the Likud politicians speaking, uh, with big banners that said, you know, we want a Jewish government for the Jewish state. And this is 
classic, you know, religious Zionist kind of the, the party, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Gvil and Smotrich messaging. And, uh, you know, like, right. the, like the golem, uh, it's, t- it's taken over or it was allowed to take over, uh, the Likud as well. Um, right. so final question on this, and I guess the next natural question, Tal, how concerned are you that if BB and his, uh, what he calls his natural allies, you know, the ultra-Orthodox and then Ben Gvir and Smotrich and the far right, if they all win outright, if they get to 61 seats in the majority, how concerned are you that they'll actually implement all the things they're, they've been talking about and promising? Um, you know, wholesale reform of Israel's judicial system, uh, eroding or effectively demolishing the democratic checks and balances that exist in Israel's political system. How, how concerned are you that they'll actually uh, do what they've been promising? Um, I think, uh, well, I, I am concerned, and I think that basically they will put all the changes uh, that will help Netanyahu's trial. They will probably try to annul the felony in the criminal code that uh, for which Netanyahu is under trial at the moment. It's called the breach of trust. Um, and uh, they claim the breach of trust felony to be broad to broad and gives the uh, general attorney, attorney too much of a big power to prosecute the uh, leaders. Hence, they are planning to just cancel the felony under this, the, the penal code, mm-hmm. after which Netanyahu's trial will automatically just will be stopped. Right. So, I mean, this is something that if once they do it, it's 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 undone. I mean, it cannot be it cannot be undone. Um, other other reforms, obviously, you mentioned they want to have all Supreme Court judges being appointed by the government, or at least when the government is the, the majority power in the appointment process, this is something that will turn Israel's Supreme Court into a joke. Uh, it's uh, basically becoming uh, like uh, Victor Orban's uh, Hungary, right. right? I mean, there's no point in having a Supreme Court if you don't have uh, um, limitation on, on powers or independence of all authorities. It's just, it's just basically a joke. I don't know if they will put all of those reforms into power, uh, but um, they will definitely try to do some. to do. They can achieve, you know, with a 61 majority, they can achieve uh, lots of things in the first year. Uh, probably not survive more than, a, more than a year because 61 majority is not enough to sustain a government. But it's, this, this can happen. This can take place for 12 months. And during 12 months, it's enough period to just... Uh, one of Netanyahu's allies went on the radio today and said that he's opening, he will open a national inquiry into the former attorney general's behavior because he wants to prosecute the former attorney general for bringing, only because, for bringing charges against Bibi. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Um, you know, crazy stuff. This is not coming even from uh, Smotrich and Baver. This is coming from the Likud uh, party. Yeah, yeah. And they've been saying it openly for, for several months now. Um, yep. Sometimes maybe too openly for BB's tastes because uh, they're actually uh, telling the public what they will likely do uh, if they win. Um, and yeah, you know, they can, you know, one law uh, that's being talked about openly is, you know, this override clause for any Supreme Court decision. So if the Knesset passes a law that then the Supreme Court deems 
unconstitutional. Uh, historically, the Supreme Court has had the power to to strike down that law. Uh, now the Likud politicians are promising to pass a law that will override any Supreme Court decision that goes against uh, a Knesset or government decision. So effectively, there's no right. there's no check on on the Knesset majority or the government. Which right. yeah, good morning. Exactly. Good morning. Uh, many other they have many other uh, initiatives. Uh, it's just this is just. Uh, the beginning of their suggestions. Yeah. Uh, good morning, Budapest. Um, final question in terms of what we may see happen next week, Tal, uh, the Arab-Israeli vote. Uh, so uh, our podcast listeners know that last week I, I did a whole hour uh, with uh, Arab-Israeli analyst Mohammed Darawshe on you know, Arab-Israeli politics and society and why the Arab vote may be at historic lows in terms of turnout next week. Um, in terms of this election, I think it's fair to say that the Balad party, it's one of the Arab-Israeli factions, uh, the more extreme nationalist one, won't make it into the Knesset, won't make it over the threshold. They're pretty much done. Um, Ram hovering next to the threshold, it might make it in. And Hadash Tal, uh, the communist's, slash mainstream Palestinian Nationalist Party is very dangerously close to the threshold. So what do you think? Do you think Arab Israelis will, when push comes to shove next week, actually come out and, and you know, give those parties enough to make it in? Or, or is there a real danger that, um, well, Arab Israeli parties will lose seats and then effectively hand the election to, to Netanyahu? So it's hard to predict. We have seen some polls suggesting that uh, the voter turnout is going to be very low. But if you follow closely what um, one of the pollsters who is doing mostly the Arab society, um, Yusuf Makladeh, he just said that the voter turnout, according to his prediction, went up a bit. Okay. And it's now, it's not, it's, I mean, the, the, the numbers were very, very low back in the summer and now they're low, but not, you know, the lowest. Um, one thing it's important to take note, if the Jewish public voter turnout is very high, then, I mean, it's not going to be enough, right? Because, you know, when you look at the voter turnout and you look at the division into the mandates and the seats, it's, it's respective to the other, other portions of the society. Um, according to some research, from what I've heard, United Torah Judaism turnout polling is also um, disturbing to to some people. They think, I mean, this is on the BB side, right? Disturbing. Uh, but, you know. Why? The, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox won't, yeah. won't come out to vote or they won't come out to vote for uh, well, them? Well, not, not in the numbers that, that they're usually are uh, voting. So that's interesting also. Interesting. I mean, this is a new, a new phenomenon we haven't seen because it used to be a very... Um, sort of a mandatory, the rabbi said you have to go, and the, the, the numbers were very, very high. Uh, some people in the past used to joke that even the dead are voting in this society, <laughs> but that's that's not true anymore. Um, but um, so I don't think the ultra-Orthodox numbers will go down anywhere close to the Arab society numbers, but uh, but definitely definitely some some new trends. We don't really know what it's going to be in the Arab society. If they reach 50%, that's very high, respectively to them. Jewish voter turnout should be between 68 to 70. 
But, you know, we may see 65. If we'll see 65, that's a low voter turnout for the Jewish. For, I mean, this is not just the Jewish. This is the general voter turnout um, that combines all of the society. Uh, usually, it was very high during um, the first, second, and third election. It was between 69 to 71. Then on the fourth election, it went down to 65. That's what I told you uh, earlier, that around 300,000 voters from the Likud southern city cities did not show up. Yeah. Um, I mean, turnout, I guess, will be an issue because uh, fifth time in less than four years, you know, apathy sets in. People say, ah, it doesn't, doesn't matter or there may be another election. So yes, it's, it's a good point you raise in terms of, you know, overall kind of voter turnout and especially relative to, to the Arab Israeli public. So it might, you know, even if Arab Israeli voter turnout kind of increases, it might get diluted due to the kind of overall proportional voting share. Exactly. By the way, I think on the second, second or third campaign, Arab voter turnout was very, very high. I think it was the second, second campaign. Second. Very high. It was like 64%. The reason for that was an insightful campaign Netanyahu led against the Arabs. He claimed that all of them are conducting frauds and they should be, um, uh, you know, their video filming should take place at the polling station. It, it's, you know... It raised hell in the Arab society, and they went in huge numbers like never before. But since then, it's in the decline, uh, yet again in a decline. Yeah, uh, we got into all of that last week uh, with Mohammed. Um, yes, they're 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 angry for several reasons, and one of them is the fact that the, the joint list uh, is is no longer, and so they're they're quite upset with their own Arab political parties mm-hmm. and representatives, exactly. um, amongst other reasons. And also, we should mention. Uh, Netanyahu has been very careful not to inflame the Arab-Israeli street. Uh, so he's he's trying to, uh, what they call here, uh, lull them to sleep uh, ahead of election day. He's trying to, to, not, uh, to not motivate them to go to the ballots on November 1st. Right. Yeah. Um, so, Tal, last two questions for you. The first one you're going to hate, the second one you're going to like. Uh, the first question, I hate to put you on the spot like this, but... What do you think will happen come November 1st or November 2nd? You know, do you think BB will get to 61? Do you think he'll fall short and Lapid will have a chance to form a government? Do you think, you know, all of this is irrelevant and we're going to a sixth election? What do you, what do you think will happen next week? And I get to ask this question all the time and I hate it, but I, ha- I have to ask well, you. Yeah, you know, and read the numbers are really too close to call because we are talking about polls. And we don't, we can't really predict because you have, you know, the polling is done on on base on base of like five hundred people, seven hundred people, eight hundred people, you know. So there's a margin of error here. So I can't really predict the margin of error. So sixty one or sixty, I mean, it can become very easily. It can become fifty nine or sixty two. Yes. And uh, on top of that it's very hard to predict the voter turnout. So, I mean, you know, the, the latest, the last poll will be conducted on Friday, um, the 28th, I think. Friday, October 28th, will be the last poll before the election. And we won't know between Friday, the 28th, until election day, November 1st. This is like five days or 
four and a half days. We won't know, you know, we won't have new polls. And in that period of time of five days or four and a half days, some things can happen. And I, I can't really tell you. I mean, you know, you can, you're going, you can have a terror attack. You can have the Lebanon-Israel maritime border agreement signed and delivered. Yes. You can have um, some, another, you know, big numbers in the housing markets, um, you know, prices going up. I, I can't really tell you. Okay. I think that's an honest answer, Tal, because uh, the margins are, are so close. You know, all it would take would be, uh, you know, one scenario, one of the parties in the anti-Netanyahu bloc or amongst the Arab-Israeli parties doesn't make it over the threshold by, you know, a thousand, two thousand votes, and that'll swing the entire election. Um, so the margins are are really tight as they have been now for four straight elections. Um, final question to you, Tal, which I think you'll like more. We've been through this now four times in the past five years. What is your what does your election day look like as one of Israel's most preeminent political journalists, you know, do you have a routine for what you do on election day? Do you have specific places that you go to? What do you do at night? You know? Oh, oh my God. You know, I had a routine for the first four election cycles. What, what did you do? Um, what did you like? <laughs> well, well, I'm not going to repeat my, my, my four time routine <laughs> because, uh, November 1st, I am briefing uh, a group that is coming from San Francisco area uh, to Israel for breakfast. So I'm briefing them on election day. Okay. Um, usually I go to the polls. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm voting and then I usually don't go to my city, my own city polls because I find them boring. <laughs> I, you know, I try to go to a more complex yes, area. I, I know where you live. Uh, yeah. yeah, but this time around, I don't know what to do. I haven't decided it because I'm so um, frustrated, like all Israelis. I'm so frustrated. I mean, I was frustrated in the third and fourth election also, but, you know, the fifth election is just it's just horrible to me. We are just ruining our own society with this election cycles. So usually what I do uh, right after lunch on election day, usually I go to the polls early. And then right after lunch, I go to take a good nap. Mm -hmm. So I will have my strength with me at night. Yes, me too. So, but this year, as I told you, I'm going to uh, brief an American group. I usually don't take outside jobs during <laughs> election day. But again, the fifth election, I'm taking a group on, a, on the Tuesday morning. Maybe I'll go watch... You know, American news uh, cycle to get re relax myself with the midterm elections. <laughs> so maybe take your take your <laughs> because, mind. Because you know they happen. Yeah, they happen only once in two years. Where we in two years we had like four of them. So it's a relaxing process to watch like normal things happen in other countries. I guess. Yeah, I think our our American listeners may dispute the fact that the midterms will be relaxing, uh, but. No, no, yes. I know, I know. Yeah, I'm just yeah, kidding. Know. I'm kidding. But, you know, we just have enough, you know. And then at night, do you go to one of the election headquarters? Do you, do you switch around during the election headquarters? Or are you at home watching the television? What do you do at night and into the morning? Right. So basically, since the first uh, election, in, in the past, like 2015 or 13, I used to go to those elections uh, parties or, or losing uh, events. But 
since things since things get so complex and we we really don't have a real result on election night so i'm sticking by the tv and trying to watch several uh channels at the same time mm-hmm. i think 10 p.m. is a crucial you know point where you have the exit polls then really i have to tell you we all understand we're not going to we're not going to know the results at the end of tuesday it it's going to take a bit uh even when you think you know the results it's really far from from a finalized uh conclusion because things change over the, overnight uh for example last time last time on the fourth election on the exit polls ram did not cross the threshold people went to bed with netanyahu as the prime minister and in the morning they woke up and ram had four sits and was in and it's you know once one party is in it changes the entire map so the division rearranged and you you need you need we need to wait at least 48 hours in order to understand the real effect and um let me just tell you one more thing about the polls and the exit polls and so mm-hmm. on we have four live results events in recent years At the first one Netanyahu's block brought 60. At the second one Netanyahu block brought 55. At the third the Netanyahu block brought 58 and at the fourth the Netanyahu block brought 59. So you have a range between 60 to 55 which all Netanyahu needs is 61. And if you ask me what's going to happen, you know, basically I would predict anywhere between 55 and 60 mm-hmm. but maybe this time they will get a 61 it's it's really hard to predict right uh and it's an important point about the exit polls on the night uh they can move around uh once actual results come in uh that's when things actually firm up but it takes usually into the next day and sometimes a couple of days uh exactly yeah. but within 48 hours it's basically something that we can already play with uh but up until that point it's just you know it can you know nuances really yeah 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 um so we'll just have to be patient uh tal thank you so much for taking the time to break sure. it all down for us i know you're catching a flight tomorrow with president herzog to the states uh so safe travels and we'll see you back here thank for you. election day see you in the white house <laughs> on, on on wednesday <laughs> yes i'm sure you'll have a lot of people there asking you what will happen on november 1st so you can just tell them they right. can listen to the podcast um if they want sure the we'll do that take care tal safe travels thank you bye 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 okay that was a great tal schneider many thanks to her for her generous time and insights as always A reminder again to register for our upcoming post-election web briefing on November 7th as well as take part in our listener survey. Both links can be found in these episode notes. Uh, also, of course, special thanks to our producer Jacob Gilman and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and as always, thank you for listening.